Welcome to episode 2, season 10 of The Versatile Writer, providing support and encouragement to writers and creatives. I hope you like the new tagline. After 10 seasons, it made sense and better fits the podcast's aims. I record my podcasts next to a sometimes open window in my office, which is next to a bird feeder and a road. At times you'll hear birds flapping and chirping and vehicles swoosh by. The information shared within this podcast is, I believe, more important than the polishedness of the tech. This is not one of those ultra-polished podcasts. It's kind of raw, which I like. I hope you do too. As mentioned in episode one, this season has a slightly different format from usual, as I use the letters of the alphabets as prompts about writing. It's worth noting that some of these topics will overlap. Some will have different names but mean the same thing. So we may have a few that sound similar throughout the season. Before I get into it, please know that you can subscribe to this podcast for free and have it arrive automatically when it's published. Please tell your friends and family. You never know, it might speak to them. You can also further the discussions of topics I raise on here on the dedicated Facebook group. The link is in the show notes or you can type the Versatile Writer Podcast Group into Facebook search bar. So here we go. Episode 2. I'm trying not to sound all Sesame Street here, but today I'm covering the letter C. I'll touch on creativity, career, cameo, courses, critiquing buddy, cursing, character, community, competitions, challenges, copyright, career, character careers, covers and cover blurb, chapters and controversial content. And that's quite enough to be getting on with, isn't it? So let's start with creativity. Wow, what a place to start. Creativity means a lot of things to a lot of people. For you, it could be playtime, relaxation time, creation time, business time or something else entirely. Creativity is all that and so much more. On another level, for me, it means a safe space to experiment without creativity. Our species would suffer, yet with it, we flourish. Creativity is allowing ourselves to experiment with different parts of our lives. Creativity can mean working with our hands in a tactile way, or it can mean working in a different way to usual. It might mean singing, dancing, painting, crafting, playing an instrument, or making music. It can mean all kinds of things. Thinking creatively can mean the difference between making something work and it not working at all. It can force you to be open-minded and it can exercise your imagination. Creativity is amazing. C is also for career. Talking of creativity, this links nicely with career, at least for me. I've had many jobs over my adulthood and, if I'm honest, I didn't like most of them, especially the way they're advertised. Ironically, that's the power of copywriting. We'll cover that shortly. Back to those jobs, though. Between them, I was always working on my writing career. Although, back in the early days, I didn't realise that at first. I believed I was just going back to writing or crafting between jobs just to give my brain something else to think about. Actually, I was developing my career all those times. How about you? Is your career your writing or is it something else entirely? 
you can engage via the Facebook group and let me know your answer. So copywriting, I mentioned it just a moment ago. Copywriting is a way to advertise a product or service and often make it seem much nicer and more attractive than it really is. Although that's quite a negative way to describe copywriting because it's actually a really good skill. It's a way to interpret what you do to potential customers. It's a sales technique used by way of highlighting the great things about a product or service. It's unlikely that a copywriter will highlight negative things because the point is to sell. Copywriting is a pretty cool skill to learn because not only does it do what it's meant to do, but it also helps the writer utilise different salesy words. When I say salesy, I mean weighty and powerful. There's an element of psychology within copywriting too. If you keep on saying sell, 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 you'll soon lose your audience through boredom. But if you say sell in other ways, you'll interest them. You have to tap into that part of their lives that the audience might have difficulty with, that the product or service will make much better. For instance, describing to a miserable office worker in the dead of winter on a freezing train platform what it's like to relax on a beach under a bright sun with water lapping against their toes, you might just get their interest. It's clear and it's compelling and it's filled with imagery. That's sales and that's copywriting. Another take on copywriting is the previous mentioned blogging in episode one. Sure, you can argue the two are entirely different and in some respects they are. But blogging and copywriting often share a heart and that heart is the compelling content they create when selling a product is key. C is also for cameo. How often do you spot the director or writer in a movie? All the time? Never? You remember Hitchcock? He used to cameo in his own movies. He literally had the tiniest role and would, perhaps, walk across a road or be in the frame somehow. That was a cameo. Now, transfer that idea into a book and that conjures some extra interest. Have you ever done that? Have you ever written yourself into your story? I'd be fascinated to find out if you have. I've included many of my likes and dislikes into characters, as well as my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, things like that. I've also included certain names that meant something to me. Although I've not added myself as a character by specific appearance, there are characteristics of me that appear in characters, so I've sort of been in my stories. I have, however, used a method of marketing my books by interviewing my characters and taking the role of the interviewer. There's a little fourth wall thing going on, but it has worked well in the past. Jane Murray, in my third novel, Guardian Angel, back in 2006, has spiky reddish hair. And although I published that story back then, I've not really altered that much. She even has my middle name as her first name, albeit spelled differently. I gave her a tiny tattoo on her shoulder. Hers is of a cartoon devil. Back then, I didn't have any tattoos, nor had I considered I ever would. Fast forward a decade or two, and I do have some. I wonder if somehow I foreshadowed my own fate. There have been other times that I've focused on myself to build the character and ended up with a lot of me in them, but they're not actually me. Generally speaking though, appearance-wise, I often have a female with red hair in my stories, so I guess that might be my cameo. I've given many a male character my husband's traits and his like of black coffee, 
often you'll read one of my heroes drinking a black coffee so that's a nod to my hubster and let's face it who wouldn't want to include their husband in their romance novel I think it's quite normal for writers to use aspects of themselves to build characters though so it isn't really out of the question the question is how much of yourself is in the story now, if you've ever read any Stephen King books or you've ever read his non-fiction book on writing, you'll notice he actively uses memories of his formative years in his stories. He also has used the idea of people he knew growing up as well as himself as a child. This is the epitome of writing what you know. Although at some point you will have to rely on your imagination. King, for instance, writes horror, but he's never murdered anyone, thankfully. His books are often translated into movies, and in those more recent ones, he has cameoed. I have to say here, and I'll do it with a big grin on my face, in the movie It, about Pennywise the Clown, King plays the antique store owner where, as an adult, Bill Denborough finds his bike that he named Silver as a child. As an aside, at the cinema when I saw that scene, it must have been filled with Stephen King fans, including my, myself and my husband. When King appeared on the screen as the shopkeeper, almost the whole audience shouted, yes! You couldn't hear the next few words on screen as everyone was giggling that they all did that. Now that's a cameo. C is also for courses. Ooh, this is an exciting one. As a businesswoman, I offer about seven courses, all designed and delivered by me. I've been on a fair few courses and attended workshops over the years, and I was in a fortunate position of being part of a training department back in the late 80s. Although I didn't think I was fortunate back then. I was the secretary to the manager, and about six or eight lecturers reported to that manager. I was the one who collated and copied the course contents and typed them too. Although it was in telecommunications, I learned there the basics on what's needed to create and run a course, so that did give me a great foundation. I wasn't a fan back then, but you use skills you gain in life, and that was one of mine. And as it turns out, it was a bonus. It was also where I met my husband, so it's a double bonus. The courses I now run under my business banner of For the Love of Books, that's loveofbooks.co.uk, are Finding Inspiration for Creative Writing, Getting to Know Your Main Character, Editing for Beginners, Writing Relationships, Keeping Track of Your Story, and From Acorn to Oak, both fiction and non-fiction versions. All are delivered online or at a physical venue if required. The thing about courses, though, is not only what you'll learn on them, but also the networking opportunities during them. And this links nicely with the next item. C for Critique Buddy. This is exactly what it sounds like. A buddy who will critique your work or you. Usually we choose someone we also get along with. I suspect this is because they're more likely to say nice things about where you've gone wrong, if you've gone wrong. Much of being a critique buddy is about feedback because you'll be critical about the work. But please bear in mind that feeding back that critique is vital for the piece of work to improve. It's not about you personally, although it can be tough to hear if you've gone wrong somehow or somewhere. A critique buddy would be handy if they're watching over a piece you're doing specifically for a brief. As a critique buddy, you'll need to ensure your writer friend keeps to the brief and doesn't go off on tangents. Whatever the guidelines are, 
you'll need to make sure your friend ticks all the boxes and a good critique buddy will offer suggestions or ways around awkward areas too. Whether you're the writer or the buddy, finding someone you trust with your work is gold, so do keep each other close. C is also for cursing and swearing. This is an interesting one and I have a good example to share with you too. Now, cursing and swearing is, for obvious reasons, really only acceptable in specific genres. Anything but children's books and stories for teenagers, I would say. You'll often see curse words in crime novels, horror, thrillers, science fiction, and some romance stories, and subgenres of each. And there's levels of cursing too. Obviously, I won't go into them here, but most of us have our go-to swear word and our go-to when really cross swear word. And the one that we use very rarely because it's considered so bad. But this brings me on to the idea that society tells us what's acceptable and what's not. Now, I don't know if you know this, but back in Roman times, and probably before then, people would use certain words every day that we would not consider using now. And it makes me wonder if a thousand years from now, what will people use then? You could argue that curse words are still words and there's a part of me that says if a word has been created, why not use it? But it's more about the situation and the emotion in which you say it that it becomes as strong as it does. And this is where my example comes in. For my last novel, Dream State, I had a scene where my character had been pushed to his absolute limits. He swore, nothing too bad, at least not for me. I had six beta beaters for that book. And one of them fed back to say they thought the language was a little tame, that he could have gone a lot further with how he felt in that, in that temper-fueled moment. Another beta reader, interestingly, fed back to say that none of it was acceptable and that he ought to have found another way to express himself that didn't involve cursing. Now, at the time, I was floored at the two total opposite ways of viewing the exact same scene. Isn't that just a brilliant beta reader result, though? Ultimately, it is down to the author what goes into the book, unless you're under the direction from a traditional publishing house, and in which case your editor will probably have the last word, although they may not. In my example, I chose to keep in the strong language because it was absolutely in keeping with the character, with the situation, and the genre's intended audience. As far as I can see, though, those are the three boxes you ought to be ticking when making these decisions. Number one, if it's right for the audience and genre, number two, if it's right for the character, and number three, if it's right for the situation. C is for character. Gosh, character, what's not to say about this one? And what's not to love? Writing characters and creating them from the ground up is quite possibly one of the best things about creative writing, in my eyes at least. Physically creating them is, of course, one thing, but then there's dialogue, their mindset, their goals, and the list goes on. That's creating them. But what about how the reader absorbs them? You've heard that there are character-led stories and there are plot-led stories. Well, if you read a, an example from each genre, do you think of the character differently? Probably not. You probably want the plot-led stories still to have engaging and interesting characters, don't you? And the character-led stories still need to have a good plot or else you might lose interest. Much of the character is shaped around the plot and the genre. In, let's say, crime or romance stories, audiences will expect the main character to look and behave a certain way, in keeping with that genre 
and the blurb. Maybe the prompt ought to be phrased like, what does character mean to you? And of that, I would love to hear your response. C is also for community. Although specifically the writing community both on and offline are a good bunch, I do believe that community in whatever way you view the word is a good thing for humans. I know that I went a bit odd towards the end of that sentence, but we are a very social species. We require others to be near. Even if we choose to live alone, we still need to go out at some point and engage with another human. Two humans makes community. And correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm not sure one human can make a community on it on their own. But I'm sort of getting off the point. Community, in this respect, refers to the writing community. A decade or two ago, when we relied less on the online community and more on real life, I attended and in some cases ran or led several writing groups. Some were writing groups and others were writers groups. The difference being that, I think, writing groups lead you to believe you will be writing during the session and writers groups imply they are groups for writers. I currently lead a writers group, which is kindly supported by Society of Authors. Within this group, that meets quarterly, March, June, September and December, we have a speaker, a Q&A session and then a final discussion. In the past, I've led writing groups where we spend the time allocated writing. We'd read out what we'd written, then perhaps use a prompt to write elsewhere and bring it back for the next session to read aloud before engaging in feedback, then more writing exercises. Community means that we get the opportunity to speak and listen to other writers. This is important because it's so easy not to make that effort. If we attend a workshop, we get the chance to engage with other writers at different stages of the writing journey. And sometimes this can be pure gold to exchange ideas with them. Sometimes friendships are formed too. That's community. That's where real excitement happens. I hope you have a community of sorts that you can feel relaxed in and who supports you in your writing. If you are looking for one, please consider the Facebook group dedicated to this podcast. I'm taking a quick break here to invite you to join my newsletter community. It's free to join and you'll get a monthly email that includes behind-the-scenes information, regular writing opportunities and exclusive offers. If this sounds like something you'd like to have, visit www.loveofbooks.co.uk and click on the free to you tab. At the bottom, you'll see the subscription button. I hope to have you on board soon. The next C is competitions. I have to be honest here, I've never really been one for writing competitions. I've taken part in in just a handful of them over my career. The one I did well in landed me a place on a long list and ultimately a six week long free course to hone the story that I'd submitted. But these are rare, certainly nowadays. The great thing about this was that I met some nice people and learned some interesting things about writing. The majorly great thing was that it was there that I was introduced to the book On Writing by Stephen King. Ironically, it wasn't during the course, it was after it ended. And I meandered to the local market afterwards and I found myself perusing the bookstore and lo and behold, On Writing was staring at me. It was as if all my Christmases had come at once, Stephen King and writing. Anyway, this anecdote kind of dates itself because the book was published back in 2000. 
but I digress. Competitions. The past year or so, I've been more inclined to look at competitions, so who knows, maybe I will compete in the future. But if you're a more experienced competitor with your writing, why not let me know via the Facebook group? C also means challenges. Oh joy, what to say about these. There are literary challenges everywhere, within your story and external ones like the International Challenge and NaNoWriMo. Now, let's start with the ones within your story. Challenges come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and I kind of like them, to be honest. I like best the ones that highlight themselves where we don't know which way to proceed. These ones make the story even better and give our minds a really good workout, sometimes for days or weeks or longer. Some recent ones of mine were, how was I going to structure the story? How was I going to lay that out in a book? How was I going to make a character seem nicer than they really were? And how would I make a character nastier than they really were? And so on. Now, that's the writing-related hands-on challenges, but what about the NaNoWriMo kind of challenges? I've talked about NaNo many times before, and I find myself mentioning it a lot during my podcasts, yet I actively stepped away from participating a few years ago. In case you don't know, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month. It's in November. The website is nanowrimo.org. That's N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. Now, I said I actively stepped away from participating a few years ago, and I did that for two reasons. I'll get to those shortly, although I've mentioned that on The Versatile Writer plenty of times. And there's even an episode in Season 7, I believe, entitled Nano or No Nano. That goes into major detail why, illustrating them with pros and cons. I'd taken part for eight consecutive years and while two were no-goes, that is I hadn't planned or had anything in mind when I set off, four were definite wins and two resulted in being novellas, so didn't really make it further than 25-30,000 words because they couldn't be any more padded out. The stories were complete, but because it's a 50,000 word challenge, Technically, I lost. But personally, I don't see these as failures because the stories were, as I just said, complete. My two main reasons for not taking part anymore are that while the essence of NaNo is to challenge yourself to write routinely, and there is a strong sense of community within it, there is also a strong sense of competition within this challenge. And I never felt like that was a help. The challenge is, I believe, with yourself not to compete with others. The pressure is already huge and in November, so at the end of that, we're heading towards Christmas, aren't we? For those of us who celebrate it. So why add to the pressure? The second reason is that I don't need a challenge to write routinely. I write for a living. It's my career. I write and publish books frequently. From the years I took part, I still have several unfinished or unedited stories. So why add to them? The only reason I can currently think of that I would take part nowadays would be because I was supporting somebody else doing it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on NaNo though and other literary challenges. The next C is copyright. Ooh, now we've moved into the potentially darker corners of the literary world. Actually, no, that's not really what copyright is about. Copyright, illustrated with the little C in a circle, is legal ownership of your creative works. It's there to protect you and your work. 
Copyright covers intellectual property in all creative forms like songwriting, music, art, etc. But we're focusing on the literary form here. Each country has its own laws pertaining to copyright, so do check out what yours are in your country. For UK copyright information, check out www.gov.uk for information. The next C is character careers. If you're interested in writing about characters whose careers are important and relevant to your plot, chances are you may need to research their career. Now, I do my fair share of online research, just like the next author, but it's good to know there are books, physical books, available that you can browse, read and make notes from and make notes in. Now, one of the books I've often looked at is one called Careers for Your Characters, a writer's guide to 101 professions from architect to zookeeper. And it's by Raymond Obsfeld and Franz Newman, and it's published by Writer's Digest Books. It is a little dated now. I've had my copy for a couple of decades, but some careers don't alter that much. I've just noticed it's been, it was published in 2002. More often than not, the only difference is rather than filling out paperwork for, say, law enforcement, is that they do a lot of it online. There are several kinds of books available like this, plus, I'm sure, plenty of websites that will help. It's worth noting, though, that some careers, particularly law enforcement and the such, often have consultants giving Q&As in, in writing-related magazines and others through Society of Authors at-home sessions. Researching can be as much fun as actually writing the story too, especially if it's a particularly interesting career. But some careers or jobs might need research carried out in the flesh. That is, you might be writing about a shop assistant's daily life or a delivery driver or something. If that's the case, why not turn to basic methods of research and simply, but briefly, respectfully, ask them what their day is like? I mean, clearly they're on a schedule, so try not to take up too much of their time. But as a thank you, why not include them in your acknowledgements when it's published? Or give them a free copy as a thank you when they're bringing the next parcel delivery? A nice full circle irony would be that the parcel contains the book. C is also for covers and cover blurb. Right, firstly and foremost... Both are important because they give a potential buyer a good indication of what they're signing up to buy. Author, those authors who choose to independently publish their books will need to be either very good at designing covers or hire a designer. Because let's face it, if your cover looks like a DIY at-home effort, it will reflect on the story and ultimately reduce the confidence your reader will have in the book, if they even buy it in the first place. And I'm not being nasty here. I've been in that situation where early on the covers left a little to be desired, but we knew nothing better back then. Covers need to look professional, use imagery in keeping with the genre, have readable fonts or font, and generally look polished. Now by polished, I don't mean they should have a sheen over the cover. I mean they ought to look as good as any traditionally published book, even to be noticed and taken seriously. I began episode one of this season with A's. And, as you might imagine, I included artificial intelligence in the A's. When using AI to develop your cover imagery, there is a lot to consider, not least the ethical points relating to where that AI software sourced its designs. There are strong arguments against and for this area of design. But you do you. That's the cover. The cover blurb, as I mentioned, needs to be in keeping with the genre and its content. 
It's pointless writing something that sounds amazing but bears no resemblance to the story within. That will make readers cross that what they signed up for didn't deliver and will result in potentially poor reviews, if they even review it at all. It's worth writing the blurb repeatedly and playing around with it to get it at its very best before deciding on a final one. I often suggest writers use the outline they originally had for the story, if indeed they used an outline, but that's another episode right there. I'll cover that in the O's for outline later on. And use the skeleton of the outline as a basis for the cover blurb. Or, if you intend to submit the book to a literary agent or publisher, this skeleton helps to remind you what the story's strongest plot points were for the synopsis. As I've just mentioned, the blurb needs to be in keeping with the genre so readers know exactly what to expect. I'd rather not imply that some genre's blurbs lend themselves to a formula, but it's true. My suggestion would be use that formula and give it your own twist of originality. For instance, the blurb for a traditional romance will have a woman at its core, a man who is likely to provide an internal or external obstacle, and a setting. For traditional romances, a relationship is likely to be the plot's goal, possibly even engagement or marriage. With crime novels, the formula might be for a body to be discovered a detective with major personal flaws is assigned the case and the ultimate plot goal is that they find the killer. Try to avoid falling into the cliché trap and be original with your blurb. C is also for chapters. This is a topic that can, on occasion, boil my blood and it really oughtn't. This is because there seems to have been an idea floating around the writing community over the past few years that every chapter has to be a prescriptive length. It doesn't. That is, unless you're writing to contract for a traditional publishing house who have stipulated that every chapter has to be, I don't know, 10,000 words long, it really doesn't. Generally speaking, if you're writing a novel, even non-fiction, chapter lengths are as long as it takes to progress the plot or tell the story. Think of chapters as scenes in TV shows or movies. They're all different lengths. If a scene was exactly two minutes long, it would become quite formulaic and frankly dull. And viewers would watch a show and about two thirds of the way in, they'd stop listening because they know it's coming to the end. Sometimes it takes longer to get across the next part and sometimes it doesn't take long at all. Sometimes a chapter could be 5,000 words and other times it could be half a page. Who knows? Chapters are there to move along a story in segments so the reader isn't bombarded with huge chunks of information all in one hit. They're sort of like a stepping stone to get through the novel. I don't know about you, but huge chunks of information in one hit really puts me off reading. There is no prescriptive length for chapters, so ensure your story progresses within the chapter and move on. If the chapter is clunky on rereading, you can edit it down and down and down until it becomes easily digestible for the reader to enjoy the story without losing any of the plot and without falling over any clunky, unneeded words. More on editing in the ease. Lastly, C for controversial content. This is a short one. Controversial content is pretty much what it says it is. Sometimes our writing highlights itself by ruffling a few feathers. This ought not to be shied from. But at the same time, read the room. Your audience will be helping to shape your work, but occasionally, or even frequently, you will ruffle them whether you've deliberately done it or not. You remember I told you about the curse words in my novel? 
That was controversial by some though, not all. If you're not sure if your work will be deemed controversial by a reader and it's not your intention to have done so, have it looked over by a beta reader first before you publish it. The last thing you want to do is alienate your readers. Right, you'll be, you'll be pleased to know that's all the C's I can think of, but it's been quite a collection. We've had creativity, career, cameo, courses, critiquing buddy, cursing, character, community, competitions, challenges, copyright, character careers, chapter length and controversial content. I hope you made some notes along the way and I also hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, why not share it? Even better, why not subscribe? Don't forget to join the Versatile Writer Podcast group on Facebook to further the conversation. And I'll see you for episode three when I touch upon D. Until then, thank you for listening to episode two, C, on the Versatile Writer.